0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 6, 5-9. This is the word of God. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him.
1: Well, good morning once again. Please be seated. I trust that the uh, message this morning will be, be helpful informative, and most of all I hope it's edifying, and we will try to stay as accurate to the text as we can. When you first read these few verses, you may think to yourself, this has nothing to do with us in this land of freedom. We're not operating under the conditions of slavery, but I think as hopefully as we go through this text, you will see that there's a lot more in common than you think with our current environment. Now, the For the opening of this uh, this, uh, sermon, I would like to thank specifically Rick Carmichael, uh, that uh, good brother of ours that's part of our congregation here, um, is a wealth of information. He has uh, a vast library, and uh, I just mentioned to him in passing, Rick, do you have anything that could help me on slavery? Uh, Maybe a bit of contextual background for life as it was in Paul's day, what his world was like. Well, Rick came through big time, 174 pages of material. So rest easy. I'm not going to take you through that this morning. But it was extremely helpful, and I would like to thank him for giving me that information. Now, I would like to start with uh, Christians in the Workplace, and I would like to give you a few slides on the background of slavery in the first century. So our first slide on slavery in the first century Um, I want to just run through these points quickly because I sense, if you're anything like me, uh, I I have a particular filter on and a lens through which I see slavery, and it was quite inaccurate when it comes to what was happening in Paul's day. Slavery was an integral part of the social and economic fabric of the ancient world. I'm not saying it was right, it was, it's been estimated in the Roman Empire in the first century there were about 12 million slaves, or stated in another way, 16 to 20% of the population. In Italy, it was even higher than that. Without the work of the slaves, the economy would absolutely collapse. It's difficult to imagine this situation because most of us view slavery through the lens of the 17th and 18th century American slavery. African captives were funneled through the Caribbean and through Brazil, slave trade to the southern United States to work on the plantations. And much has been written about the plight of these oppressed peoples. They were finally freed in the 19th century, as you know, in the year 1865 by Abraham Lincoln. One of the driving forces behind the American Civil War was the moral issue of slavery and the tremendous conflict that created between the North and the South. Now there are big differences between this more recent period of history that I've just referred to and the long history of slavery in ancient times. Let me, let me explain. So on this slide you will see the first point is slavery in the ancient world had nothing to do with skin color, ethnicity, or race. It had everything to do with people that were conquered, that were taken over, that were defeated, and they became captives of the Roman Empire. Rather than killing them, the Romans used them to strengthen their economy. And it's important to note that some of these countries from which they acquired these uh, vanquished peoples that became slaves were highly educated and skilled. In other words, they had economic value. The second point, the slave for the most part had no identity of their own. They were treated as commodities and totally controlled by their owner. Slave traders bought and sold slaves across the empire, and it was a huge business and a huge part of the economic fabric of society. Anyone living in the first century, this is, I know this is hard for you to understand, but anybody living in the first century could not imagine a world without slavery. But that's true. Ephesus had a slave market, so did many of the other big cities across the Roman-controlled empire, and slaves were a fundamental part of the economy. It's because they functioned, the third point, in all levels of society, right from the lowest level from the mines and the farms to the highest levels of imperial administration. Now those in the mines, it was dreadful they were mostly condemned criminals. They had been convicted of a crime, they were sentenced to work in the mines, and they were basically worked to death. It was dreadful, inhumane conditions, no hope of freedom, terrible. However, those in the urban areas, and in some degree, those on the farms, they worked in every stratum of society, some with very significant responsibilities. This is totally unlike the menial servitude of the American slaves in the south. You see what I'm saying? Perhaps you could have a freed person subservient to a slave. Very much so. It happened often in Paul's world. The fourth point, large numbers of domestic and urban slaves could anticipate being set free, often by the age of 30. And this procedure was called manumission. This changed a slave status from slave to a freed man or a freed woman. They had a patron allegiance to their former owner and they would still do services for them. And often they even took as one of their names the name of their previous owner just to show that they were tied to that particular owner. But they were no longer under control of the master. They were totally free to do as they wished. You See how different this is? from the slavery as we think of it, where there was no hope of freedom. In fact, one of the Roman emperors in AD 4 uh, passed a law saying that you could not free your slaves until age 30 because there were so many of them being freed. They were somewhat afraid of instability in the empire. And Romans did free their slaves with great frequency. And there was a whole number of reasons for that. Uh, we don't have time to go into it. It's quite interesting to read it, but I uh, just wanted you to get that context. Now, some masters were cruel on the next slide and subjected their slaves to all kinds of degrading and inhumane forms of punishment. And it's even dreadful to think of this. They managed their slaves through fear, intimidation, threatening. Interesting it's mentioned in the verses. And often in these situations, there was abuse of slaves Sexually, female slaves in particular, also male slaves. However, as the first century progressed and into the second century, there was numerous laws passed where the Roman government wanted to protect the slaves because they understood the critical importance they were to the economic engine. The next point is good slave owners treated their slaves well. They educated them. Oftentimes, they were given an allowance. They even lived separately. They became managers, physicians, accountants, government administrators, you name it. The master could hire them out on contract also to increase his own revenue. They encouraged stable family units because the children born to the slave were automatically slaves. And so that increased the value of the master's estate. It's also important to realize that slaves were not considered the lowest levels of society. And that surprised me. I I just thought automatically that would be the case. Not so. The poor, impoverished citizens of Rome, the free citizens, were at the bottom of the social hierarchy. And many of those people, they actually sold themselves into slavery because you know why? They could get three full meals a day. They could perhaps get educated. There was a chance of freedom. Uh, at the the end of it even though they were Roman citizens they had the right to freedom already they wanted the security so not in every case but I just wanted to give you that context so you can understand the total different context of the situation and in fact um, in some of the material that Rick gave me it was very interesting to see that our understanding of many New Testament words such as redemption justification and so on are really derived from this slave-master relationship, which is quite interesting. I wanted to give you an example on the next slide of what I call a senior management former slave. This surprised me. Felix, the governor of Judea at the time that Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea in AD 57, he was a former slave, but then he was freed by the household of Caesar and became a freed man. This shows very clearly that there was really good upward mobility of slaves, especially imperial slaves. Now, it's interesting. There's a whole history behind Felix. He was not a good manager. He was corrupt. Um, He did well for himself in securing the position. He actually got it through his brother, who was really tied in tightly to Caesar's household. But he put down some... Revolts with really heavy-handed actions, and he was corrupt. And the Jews complained to Rome and said, you got to get rid of this guy. We need a new governor. And so they recalled him. You remember, this is not hard, to believe, not hard to, for us to see because in Acts, you remember when Paul met with Felix? Felix hoped that Paul was going to give him some money, a bribe, to secure his freedom. So this just shows the kind of a person that Felix was. But my point in raising this is that his rise to the office of provincial governor was an extreme example of the potential upward mobility of imperial slaves. So if we just go to the Christians in the Workplace slide again, I'm going to turn now back to our outline. Specifically, we've covered the first point as much as I wanted to cover it, the background of slavery in the first century. I would like to go specifically now to the admonition to the two different groups. Just before doing that, I want to say something here that um, I think is quite important. Notice that Paul in these verses does not directly condemn slavery as an institution, but very interestingly, he plants the seeds for its destruction. He uses the same technique in Philemon, where the apostle does not command a master to release a slave, but rather to think of him as Paul's son, Philemon, verse 10, and to treat him as a dear brother, Philemon 16, verse 16. Elsewhere, Paul reminds all that of himself, he who... Was a slave when he was called by the Lord, a slave to sin, is the Lord's freedman. You see this language, how it all ties in with the cultural situation of the day. That's in 1 Corinthians 7. Therefore, it's apparent that in the household where Paul's instruction for masters and slaves was followed, per these verses that have been read to us, the bonds of slavery were really broken and the freedom of Christ would reign. Now, it's evident that throughout history, man has sought to enslave others for personal gain, greed, control, and sin is the root cause. And the only thing that can change the situation is transformation of the heart. That's the only thing. Salvation, faith in Christ, allegiance to a new master is what is needed. And it's, this, it's that fundamental fact that I believe Paul is addressing in these verses, that in, in reality, both slaves and masters, employers, employees, we serve a higher master, all of us. And that's what these verses are highlighting. So let's go specifically now to, uh, to uh, this section. Um, I would say the application to us is not difficult to understand in these verses, If slaves and masters were obligated to demonstrate Christ to each other in a context of what I would say of such great inequity, just think about that. If they're obligated to demonstrate Christ to each other in a context of such great inequity, how then much more should we be willing to represent him in our work context? If our employer is unfair, that does not excuse us from acting with integrity. The slave in his situation was not excused from Christ's likeness in a society of unfairness. If an employee is difficult, that does not give the boss the right to retribution, retaliation, intimidation any more than a slave master. Even where difficult economic or employment decisions need to be made, all who represent Christ to one another must act with truthfulness, integrity, in consideration. So I hope, I hope this has given you a bit of a background which helps us understand these verses. Let's look at the specific admonition for the slave, or in our case, the employee. This is point number two in your bulletin. They are to work in four different ways, and there's different ways of perhaps categorizing this, but um, looking through all of the material that Rickett sent me and some of my own material, I rather like this, uh, this lineup. First of all, they are to work respectfully, verse 5. It says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now this expression is somewhat a little bit difficult for us to understand perhaps, but the slave is in a subordinate position to the master and must respect his authority. He's not advising like false humility, or, humility rather, or, or, or cringing before a human master, you know, just struck with fear and not able to do anything. Rather, he's directing the slave's service to God with God becoming the ultimate authority figure in their life. Paul says of the Christian elsewhere, you recall this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Same, same expression. In other words, with respect and awe of how powerful God is and how small we are. Paul advised Timothy to instruct believing slaves that all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. It's evident to me from that verse that some disrespectful Christian slaves had tarnished the gospel's cause among non-Christian masters. You you can imagine, you know, I I really feel for leadership of the church, um, the elders, the deacons that are wrestling with big issues and challenges. Can you imagine in this time, in this period when Paul was writing this, in the case where the slave had a Christian master, the temptation toward disrespect could easily be intensified by their spiritual equality as brothers. This could really get amplified. Can you imagine? Because what if the slave was a teacher in the church and the master was being instructed by him? Very interesting, huh? This could produce a very disrespectful attitude, possibly, in their professional relationship. This is why Paul further addressed this problem in 1 Timothy 6. He said this, Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service as believers are dear to them. So there can be no place, my first point here, is there can be no place in the Christian's employee's life for subtle insubordination toward his employer or perhaps thinly veiled contempt. We need to conduct ourselves with respect and fear. I remember when I first started working, uh, I kind of even hate to say the date, but it was 1976 in a high-tech manufacturing facility as a new graduate engineer. A senior executive from upstairs, we used to call it mahogany roll, very nice offices, the CEO, the general manager of the entire facility, and this was a massive plant. It would take you a long time to walk the complete facility. This man, distinguished-looking man in his early 40s, I thought he was really old then. I was in my early 20s. He was very distinguished-looking, very insightful, and stopped numerous times to chat with me. I was a test engineer working on large mainframe telecommunication systems and was so impressed that he would stop to talk to me I mean, why would he choose me out of all these people he's walking by? I greatly respected him, especially when I realized that he was the general manager of the entire facility. I was in awe, and it made me work even harder. So it's good to have a healthy respect for those that are in charge. It'll change your attitude and the way you react to things. They're not perfect. Respect the position, if not the person. Very important. Secondly... Be sincere. Paul's next point that we should conduct ourselves sincerely with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. I think that perfectly complements the call for respect. Sincerity in this sense in these settings, if you look up these words, it literally means singleness of heart. The idea that we ought to obey and serve with an undivided mind without ulterior motives or hypocrisy. It's the focus on Christ, really, that dominates all the advice to slaves and employees. It's mentioned in verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. It keeps going back to Christ, the Lord, he who is above us all. I think serving Christ as we would serve those over us is to be the transforming realization for us and motivation behind our work. And I think that's the perspective that's really important to grasp from these verses. Now, it's possible for the The mom who's at home or the dad at home cooking a great meal, cook the meal as if the Lord himself was going to be present to eat it. If you're cleaning the house, always not such an exciting, great thing to do. Clean it as if the Lord was going to come and visit you. It's possible for teachers to educate children, doctors to treat patients, etc. Everyone to do their job in such a way as if they were serving Jesus Christ himself. A story you may have heard before of three workmen building the cathedral. I think maybe Rick has mentioned this in one of his earlier messages if I don't re- if I recall correctly. And they were questioned by a visitor as to what they're doing. The first guy said, "I'm chipping stones." The second said, "I'm earning wages." The third guy said, "I'm building a great cathedral." There's the attitude you want. I'm building a great cathedral. That's our. That's what we see. As our life is being built as Christ's edifice to His glory, and this is what spawns our respect and our sincerity toward those that we serve here on earth. The third point: conscientiously. This is very important. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Have you ever work with people that they're all action when the boss is around, but when the boss isn't there, they're goofing off, not working? I've seen that quite a few times. Out of his eye, there's really no industry No enthusiasm, no real heart for the work. This is apparently what happened in the parable of the talents. Remember in Matthew 25, the two servants that were given the five talents, another guy was given two, they went to work right away, quite industrious. Even though the the manager was gone, the master was gone on a journey, and they doubled, each of them doubled what they were given. Well done, good and faithful servant. What happened to the other guy, though, that got the one talent? He went and buried it in the ground, didn't do anything. When he came back, he had some insulting thing to say. No respect, you notice, for the master. And just gave him back the talent that he had given to him initially. The master was not pleased. He called him a worthless servant. He said, you wicked, lazy servant. I'd like to just say this. The Lord has no use for for slothfulness. There's no such thing as a lazy, faithful servant. Impossible. We need to be conscientious in our work. Now, if you're working at what you consider to be a nothing job, you're nevertheless called to work energetically all the time. Believe me, I've worked in some nothing jobs. When I first started working as just a kid at 14, I was digging dirt in greenhouses, helping to grow plants for Floris. That's nothing work. I mean, it's really, it's not very, not very exciting. It seems like an endless job, just keeps going and going. But whether the boss is there or not, we need to continue to work well, work hard. This applies to students, those young people among us that are working at part-time jobs, as well as for long-term employees. One thing I thought of as I got older in life. Um, a lot about was a statement that Mr. Henry Royce made at the Rolls-Royce Motor Car Company in England. He said something very insightful. He said, whatever is rightly done, however humble, is noble. That, that, that is right on the money. No matter how low the job is, how insignificant it may seem to be, do it well. At the end of the day, you can look back with pride on a job well done. Prominent theologian was preaching in Poland. And to his surprise, he was invited to an aristocratic estate to visit with the Lord of the Manor and his family. 1,300-acre estate. During the visit, the Lord of the Manor, during the tour, pointed to an oppressive young man standing over there. And the prince said, do you see that young man? He's the best worker on my estate. It was due to him that I invited you over here today. He then went on to say that he was favorably disposed to a religion that could so affect a man's life. You know, that's really remarkable. That's real testimony. And how often that has happened through the ages due to the conscientious, hard, energetic work of those that serve their earthly employer just as if it was the Lord himself. And then lastly, pleasantly, this is an interesting one. Serve wholeheartedly, it says, or better with goodwill, as the RSV and NASB translate this. If you are serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord is going to reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he's slave or free. So the idea is that we're to go about our tasks with cheerful Goodwill with pleasantness. And we know that we can do it with good cheer because the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he's slave or free. This is a great motivation for pleasantness as we do what I call sometimes the drudgeries of life. As John Stott says, employees should work as if their heart and soul are in it and be cheerful and pleasant as they do so. Now, it's fun, I don't know about you, but I've worked with some great people. Uh, It's really fun to work with them because they're enthusiastic, they're pleasant. If there's problems, they get right at it to solve the problem, and they make the environment a real positive one. So don't be a perpetual complainer and focus on the negative. I, I, I just find toxic co-workers, perpetual complainers, nothing's right, everything's wrong, are not fun to be around. Don't waste time listening to all this drama. They call them drama queens. It accomplishes nothing and it's just a total waste of time. Be pleasant in your work. There's enough real negative things too that can sometimes get us down. than creating your own negativity around your own attitude towards your work and to your employers. Now the third point in our outline is admonition to the masters or to employers. So let's just run real quickly through this because I want to leave time at the end to talk about practical application and observations. What does Paul mean when he says that masters should do the same things to their slaves in verse 9? Most uh, of the interpreters agree that Paul intends to instruct masters in a general way to treat their slaves just as well as their slaves should treat them. That's the idea. The command is another way to urge masters to treat their slaves justly and fairly. Colossians 4 says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly, fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I, I find this quite interesting, this line of thinking. There's a presupposition of human equality here that's progressively developed in these verses. The context moves in the direction of mutuality between the slave. And the Master. Paul has introduced us to these verses talking about earthly masters, a little subtle hint there. This is earthly masters. We're all ultimately subject to a much higher Master. Paul states that slaves and those that are free are going to be treated in exactly the same way at the final judgment. There's no favoritism with the Heavenly Master. So this is the golden rule of management. Treat slaves slash employees the way you want to be treated. Remember that both of you are subject to a higher master which is in heaven. The second point B under masters in your bulletin is do not threaten or intimidate. The idea of of, uh, give up threatening suggests the idea of loosening up or releasing Don't use your weight and authority to bully people. Don't throw your weight around, lord over people. Don't be inconsiderate and abusive. You know, the good master realizes that his own authority, although it's God-given in this context, is strictly functional and temporary. We know that we're both under the supreme authority of God above our master. And he's not on earth. He's in heaven. The faithful Christian employer knows that his he is a fellow servant of Jesus Christ with his employees and ultimately we're all accountable to the same master. You know, think about it. Threatening, you know, intimidation doesn't really work very well. You just treat your slaves or your employees poorly so you just work out your own frustration on the poor employees And all this angry, threatening does is humiliate people and would at best produce eye service. It won't encourage obedience from the heart or anyone to serve with enthusiasm when they see how unreasonable the boss is being. So this instruction from Paul to masters renders useless. One of the most common tools and tactics of the day to rule with intimidation and fear. Christianity produces a radical change in the master-slave relationship. So let's now move in the closing moments of my message to some of the practical implications from what we've considered. And this is to point four in your bulletin. And I prepared a couple of slides for this just to kind of keep our focus on this. Is, um, I hope that as I run through this, um, I know many of you in this room Our employees, some of you are managers, some of you run your own companies, some of you work at home, some of you are in a hybrid environment. This applies to you regardless. And looking back over my own experience, I just want to emphasize to you, um, I feel this very deeply and strongly because I have seen it work in my own life. Not that I'm any great example, but I have seen these work in real life. The first point under practical application is, number one, your primary responsibility as a Christian is to deliver exactly what you were contracted to do. Service for the Lord isn't a valid excuse for not doing your job. That really annoys me. When you hear Christians say, well, I wasn't able to accomplish my objectives. I wasn't able to do what the boss wanted because I was serving the Lord. That is totally wrong. All that does is undermines your testimony and makes your witness totally ineffective in the workplace. You need to do the job that you signed up to do. So that's number one. Number two, stand firm in principle and don't compromise under any circumstances when it comes to integrity. If your company asks you to engage in dishonest practices, then sit down and discuss it with them. And if necessary, you may have to leave that employer. Be truthful in how you deal with the company in your own life. There's, uh, it's too bad we don't have time to go into this, but there's such wonderful examples in the scripture of this. Uh, remember Daniel, captured, taken to Babylon as a slave? Talk about integrity. He stood up against great adversity, and the Lord blessed him. Even though there was internal office politics competing guys among the princes? Who's going to be the top guy? Who's going to be the prime minister? Daniel didn't compromise. Let me give you an example of the flip. Remember Gehazi, the servant of Elisha in um, I think it's 1 Kings. Remember greed overtook him. And when he saw Naaman the Syrian after his healing disappear with all these wagon loads of money and expensive clothes. Wow, some of that could be mine. And he remembered the story how unknown to, well, he thought it was unknown to Elisha. He runs after him and says, oh, my Lord has some special visitors just arrived. And yes, he could use some of your wealth now, the money and the raiment and and the clothing. And he was being totally dishonest. And of course, his sin found him out. But there's many good examples if you want to look at specific spiritual or biblical examples of standing firm on principle. Number three, demonstrate in your work the attitude, compassion of a Christian. These actions, I would just like to say this, these, these actions in the workplace, you, you probably don't realize it, but these actions in the workplace, just the little things, speak far more loudly than anything you can say you know, either in a conference call, Zoom, or around the water cooler. What you do is what people are watching. It's very poor testimony for a Christian to be known as a person who can't get along with anybody, doesn't treat their own stealth well. Isn't it annoying that when something's done well, the boss takes the credit, doesn't give any credit to the employees that actually delivered it? If something goes wrong, then it's the employee's fault, not the manager that actually organized the how the work was going to get accomplished, we need to do the opposite. If something's done well, give the people the credit that did the good work. If something goes wrong, you're at the top of the chain, take the, take the heat. You should accept personal responsibility for what you do. I'll just um, give you a... I, I don't like to use personal examples, I, but I, my, my company that I was working for I was in Chicago, said, Alan, we need you in Raleigh, North Carolina. We got some issues. Uh, please come. So after a period, we went there. And I just arrived. Um, brand new environment, big big tech firm, and a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of stress and you know what it's like when you're in a new environment, you're just trying to feel your way, what's, what's happening here? And I was really busy very busy. And I would only have been there maybe a week. And my executive assistant came in to me and said, can I speak with you for a moment? And I thought, oh no. What have I done? What have I done wrong? Have, have I stepped over the line somewhere? And she said to me um, something which took me totally by surprise. Total, totally shocked me. She said, are you a Christian? And I was... Uh, <clears throat> I was dumbfounded that she would know that. I had said nothing. I had not witnessed to anybody there yet, never said anything. And so I was very interested to find out, what, what is that all about? Well, the reason is because she was observing what I was doing, and how I was treating other people, and not cursing people out for not meeting commitments. And that demonstrated to me very clearly that it's what I do, it's not what I say. The next point is don't run away from problems. Solving tough issues builds your character and enhances experience. And I'm not saying this is a blanket rule, but I see some people that every time there's a little issue, they just change jobs, go somewhere else. That does not build character. It weakens your ability to handle stress and you won't be able to keep calm under pressure. The last and final slide is my last four points on this, is mentoring others helps your value, enhances your value, and promotability. You know, you can't attract top talent into your group if you don't care for people. You don't give them the appropriate training, and you don't recognize them when it counts. I I used to really think about this because it gave me a bit of a thrill to think, well, maybe I've got the person, the, the, the gal or the guy in my group right now that's going to be the next CEO of the company. That's quite possible. In which case, work with them, groom them properly, give them a thrill and a sense of personal accomplishment. The next point I think this is very important. Choose the time and the place carefully to speak to co-workers about spiritual things. And again, we need to be very careful here. Because my experience has been that a word spoken quietly, mostly on my own time, privately, to someone over a lunch break or whatever, is highly effective. Sometimes just a word of comfort. Maybe a spiritual uh, word of comfort. Maybe an email. Maybe a text. The overriding principle is use discretion. And do not use company resources for evangelism unless you have permission to do so. It's very important that we live our lives correctly and we respect those with whom we work. You will find that people will come to you uh, for advice and counsel and for um, perhaps reflection on different things, different life issues, if they feel you're a person that they can approach. And the last point... Is, uh, or the second last point is balance work and home life priorities. And this is more important now than ever. You know, I did a big I read a big thing one time on the difference between what's urgent and what's important. And uh, there's a difference. And, you know, the problem is in our con- connected world right now where, you know, our phones are dinging all the time, we have texts coming in. You know, we're anxious to see what's going on. We just never disconnect from anything. But there is a time and place to kind of put that to one side and spend time with your family and develop the relationships that you need with your children. I think that's very, very important. And it's so hard now to do this. It's even much harder than when I first started work. And lastly, as we close, remember that no one's indispensable. Sometimes we get a really inflated and unhealthy view of how important we are. Especially if we think that, wow, the company just couldn't survive without me. You'd be amazed how quickly they can replace you. It's like, you know, if you have a bucket of water, you pull your boot out of the water, if you're standing in water, and you pull your boot out, how fast the water comes back and fills the hole. That's just how fast they can replace you. So let's not be proud overly proud of our endeavors. And let's just keep ourselves balanced as we think about these things. Now, I hope these these thoughts have been helpful. You may not agree with everything I've said, and we're far from perfect in our own lives, but I hope it's been encouraging to you that if you live your life to these principles that are outlined in these verses, the Lord will richly bless you. You might be surprised. You know the best way to get promoted? Don't ask for it. Just do, just do the job. Let's close. Father, we pause just now at the commencement, or the close of our service here, as we've commenced with these verses thinking about um, masters and slaves and present-day employers and employees. We do pray that you would help us as weak vessels, but as Christians carrying the light of life in our lives, that we might be bright testimonies in our workplaces. Help us to do our jobs uh, with respect, sincerity, conscientiously, and also with a sense of pleasantness that we might be a great and vibrant testimony to the work of Christ in our lives. How wonderful it is to know Jesus as Savior. We pray for those that do not know Christ today, even someone here perhaps that does not know this transforming power of the gospel. We do pray that Lives might be changed, and we might serve you more acceptably in the days ahead. We appreciate all that you've done for us. Give thanks for your blessings to us and part us with your blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.